covering all aspects of Milwaukee Brewers baseball. It's time for Brewers Extra Innings, the podcast. Here is your host, Matt Pauley. It is time for another edition of Brewers Extra Innings, the podcast powered by WTMJ Mobile. My name is Matt Pauley. Thanks so much for uh, spending some time uh, with me and really with us. We have a couple featured guests that are going to be on the program today. We'll be joined uh, in our social media conversation in just a few minutes by uh, Kyle Loebner. He is uh, part of the Timber Rattlers website, the Shepherd Express. Uh, he does the uh, Frosty Brew on his Twitter account. He'll join us. And then uh, this is one of our weeks where, as opposed to being focused in on one of the single minor league affiliates in the Brewer system, we're going to kind of take that view from 30,000 feet and look at the entire system, and we'll have an extended conversation with uh, Brad Ford from Brew Crew Ball coming up in just a little while as well as we look through a lot of the guys in the minor league organization, including guys who uh, were just drafted uh, recently. And we'll take a look at the new uh, prospect rankings that have been put together by MLB Pipeline, those released here over the last week or so. Always want to remind you, we record this on Sunday night, so we try to make as much of the content uh not outdated, I guess you could say, or content that will not get outdated as the week goes along, but that's not always uh, not always possible. But just remember, if you are listening, we do record this on Sunday nights. And as always, uh, if you want to give any feedback, whether it's just feedback on the podcast overall or if you want to comment on uh, something that we're talking about, feel free to uh, tweet at me, at Matt Pauley Radio, M-A-T-T-P-A-U-L-E-Y Radio. I know a lot of you already follow me on Twitter. I always appreciate everybody who does uh, take the time to uh, press the follow button. If you happen not to follow me on Twitter, I would love to follow, but even if you don't follow me, you can still tweet at me, and uh, I will certainly uh, respond or do my best uh, to respond. Every once in a while, I miss one. So if you've tweeted at me, and I haven't tweeted back or acknowledged. Uh, it was not done on purpose. Sometimes just a lot of stuff starts coming in, and uh, perhaps I miss it. You can also always email me, matt.pauly at wtmj.com. So we've got our social media conversation coming up in just a little bit. Uh, we will also uh, go down on the farm. We'll go through our headlines of the week. I want to get into something, though, as we open up the program, because on Sunday – we really saw our first move that was made, the, the waiver trade deadline deals uh, that, that go on in the month of August with Yonder Alonso being traded to the Seattle Mariners from the Oakland A's. If you listen to this program on a regular basis, if you listen to me on WTMJ Radio, whether it's during uh, the Brewers Extra Innings Post Game Show or anything else that I happen to be on there, I've been saying for a while, and I don't say this to pat myself on the back, I say this just to bring attention to it, I've been saying for a while that I always thought the Brewers had more potential to be active at the August deadline as opposed to the July deadline. thought the July deadline was a little early for Brewers executives to completely decide whether or not they were all in on this club or not. So it was kind of up, up to the club to continue to play well, continue to stay in the race in the National League Central and to a lesser extent the wild card, and there might be some more moves to be made. I stand by that, and we've seen the Brewers play well. They took two out of three from uh, St. Louis. They took two out of three from Tampa in the last week. As we record this on Sunday night, they're within a half game of the Cubs. They're right there, and I expect the Brewers to be active at this August deadline. 
Now, we know that David Stearns isn't going to give away too much. And there's been a lot of talk recently about a Justin Verlander type. I don't see that. And we'll talk a little bit more about that with Kyle Loebner coming up in just a few moments. The thing about Verlander is, you know, he's got a little bit less than $60 million left on his deal over the next two years. Uh, and then he also has a vesting option at, uh, I think, $22 million for, for a third year, which which could happen. That's a lot of money for this club to spend over the next few years on a pitcher who quite honestly looks like he is in the decline. Now, if you can get the Tigers to pick up a, a hefty portion of that salary, that's a that's a different discussion. But if you're asking the Tigers to pick up a lot of that salary, what does that mean you're giving away? You have to give away enough that it's worth it to them to pay Verlander not to pitch for them. And Generally, that takes some high-level prospects, and I'm not—I don't—I don't know if I'm all in on that. So, you know, could the Brewers afford a Verlander's contract moving forward? Sure, but is it a contract that two years from now, if they're paying him $22 million at that third year, uh, that that final year vests in, and, and he's making $22 million, uh, or even you know the 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 56, I think it is million over the next two years, is that a number that's going to stop you from being able to do things? going forward, whether it's free agency or wherever it might be. I don't know. I feel like the Brewers have some money, and we'll, we'll see what happens. But the, he's not the guy that I'm super interested in. I think they could make a move for a veteran outfielder. You know, The name that's been out there a lot is Curtis Granderson. And according to uh, John Heyman, he reported it on Sunday, that Granderson has cleared waivers. So that would mean he's eligible to be traded. You know, There's some other positions there as well. I think there's four spots that the Brewers could do some work to improve themselves. And you probably don't want to, you know, bringing in four new guys is a lot for this team, especially when you would be replacing some guys who have been a big part of this team uh, and the success that they've had this year. But right now you're not getting a ton of production from center field. You're not getting much production from second base. You'd love to see... Uh, maybe one more bullpen guy brought in, a guy who could be a high leverage, seventh, eighth inning kind of guy, and starting pitching as good as it has been uh, over the last week plus, starting pitching is still an area that you feel like you could maybe improve yourselves uh, depending on what's available. I don't expect the Brewers to bring in a second baseman, a center fielder, a starting pitcher, and a relief pitcher because at that point you know, you're turning over essentially 20% of your roster at that point. That's probably not the best way to go. But if you can pick up one or two guys in those key positions, I think that helps you continue to make a run at the Cubs who, quite honestly, as they have played over the last few days, now they've played some good teams, but they're, they're kind of going back to looking like the team they were before they, they made their moves, before specifically the, the Quintana move, before they got Quintana, how they were looking. And really, if the best thing that could possibly happen for the Brewers, beyond them just making it in the postseason, is the Cubs completely going back to playing that way and not even make it into the postseason this year because then you paid a lot. You gave up a ton of prospects for the two main moves you made, the move with the White Sox for Quintana and also the Detroit move, and those guys aren't going to be in the organization going forward. Of course, with Quintana, you did. You do get him for a club control moving forward, but 
the perfect scenario for Brewers fans would be the Cubs to uh, not play well the rest of the way and those trades not make a huge impact. We'll see. I just think it's going to be really interesting going in to that August 31st uh, trade deadline, and uh, the clock is ticking just a few weeks out from that, and that's that helps potentially helps the Brewers get into September and make that stretch run down uh, the course of the season. All right, again, uh, we've got uh, our all our normal segments today. Well, uh, by the way, thanks to everybody who listened to the special trade deadline edition last week. We released the show um, 18 or so hours later than we normally do. We waited for the trade deadline to pass. It's kind of anticlimactic because the only uh, the only move that was made was that to acquire uh, Jeremy Jeffress. But had some folks wondering where in the world the podcast was when they woke up Monday morning. We delayed it last week, so thanks so much for being uh, being flexible and accommodating with your schedule and still uh, listening to it. And we're back onto our uh, normal schedule moving forward. It doesn't matter if it's right in the middle of the summer or winter. There's always news about the Brewers. Let's look back at the week that was with Matt's headlines of the week. All right, well, we just mentioned one of the news items of the week. At the trade deadline, they do reacquire Jeremy Jeffress. I've already had some folks. In fact, I um, after uh, the Brewers did not use Jeremy Jeffress in Sunday's game, they used Jacob Barnes instead, and Barnes gave up the game-winning home run. Had some folks say, why in the world are they not using Jeremy Jeffress in that scenario? I understand that question. I completely understand that question because I think there's a lot of people out there who remember Jeremy Jeffress as the guy he was when he left Milwaukee last year. Well, he's not the same guy, and they're trying to turn him back into that guy, but quite honestly, he's not the same guy. In 39 games with Texas this year, he pitched to a 5.31 ERA. 29 strikeouts, 19 walks, and 40 innings. Uh, I guess that's not horrible. His uh, fastball velocity is down. It just wasn't working for him in Texas. Now the Brewers are hopeful they can get him back to the form that he was in when he left Milwaukee last year, but this is not a flip-the-light-switch sort of thing. This is going to take some time, and who knows if it's even going to happen at some point this year. But the idea is to get Jeffers back to where he was at last year, but I don't think the club is especially comfortable using him in those high-leverage situations quite yet. Uh, Brandon Woodruff goes and makes his Major League debut, and it was a Major League debut that was delayed by about a month and a half. If you remember, he was scheduled to start against St. Louis in a, uh, a doubleheader day, and he ended up getting injured uh, felt something pull as he was stretching before the game. Well, a month and a half later, there he is, and so far, absolutely so good for uh, for Brandon Woodruff. It's been fun to see, or it was fun to see, what he did as uh, Woodruff goes out there, and he was able to uh, pitch. Uh, he, he doesn't give up a run. And I think a lot of people were maybe surprised. It was an interesting day for him. He was pitching in the, um, he pitched of that series, he pitched the opener at Tampa Bay on Friday night. 
goes six and a third, gives up just seven hits, six strikeouts, and two walks. In the first two innings, he loads the bases and gets out of it. In the third inning, he has first and third, nobody out, and he gets out of it. And then after that, he was really able to move through. His fastball was very, very good. And uh, his secondary stuff was pretty good as well. So we'll see what Woodruff looks like going forward. But uh, definitely a good Major League debut for Brandon Woodruff. Uh, the Brewers did have to make a move this past week behind the plate because Jet Bandy, uh, he ends up getting hurt, and uh, we'll see how long he is going to be. Uh, he's going to be out, but now with Bandy hurt and Stephen Vogt out, uh, they had to go to uh, the guy who's essentially turned into the fourth catcher, somebody who was uh, competing for a spot on the big league roster during the course of spring training. But that's Andrew Susak. As we record this on Sunday night, we haven't seen him. Bandy's out with a broken rib, and we'll see how long he's going to be out for. This is a guy who, you know, broken ribs don't come back really fast, and I haven't really seen much yet uh, in terms of when he might be able to be back. There's a chance we don't see him for the rest of the year. So Andrew Susak is the backup catcher right now. That means Manny Pena is going to get the vast majority of time. Stephen Vogt should be back before the end of August, and that's good. And uh, then you know, by the time you get into uh, September, you've got the expanded rosters, so you'll be able to have three catchers. And if Bandy does get back at some point, which is unknown at this point, uh, you would be able to do something with him. And then as far as guys staying in the organization, uh, this past week, both Willie Peralta and Kirk Neuenheis, after clearing through waivers, they both accept their assignment to uh, Colorado Springs. Neuenheis has been there most of the year. But Peralta goes there. He essentially had to take that assignment so he can continue to get paid. Good to keep him there. You never know when he might be able to, you know, find what's been missing and maybe make an impact on this team, especially if there's openings because of injury or whatever it might be. Good to have him still in the organization, but it really does not seem like Peralta is a guy who is uh, long for the organization. We'll just have to wait and see. Speaking of pitchers who are now uh, pitching at uh, Colorado Springs, we did see uh, Junior Guerra make his Colorado Springs debut as he's trying to really find himself and get things right again. It was kind of more of the same from Guerra. The overall numbers looked all right in his uh, most recent start uh, when uh, he pitched five innings against Salt Lake. He gives up just one run on three hits. However, he walks four. So that's not something you want to see. His pitch count, he has 85 pitches, 39 for strikes. Uh, That's not enough strikes at all. And so he certainly still has some work to do moving forward. So those are uh, this week's Headlines of the Week. After every Brewers game, signing an announcement, bloggers and podcasters hit the web to give their take. Now we bring them all together. It's the Social Media Roundtable, and it starts now. Brewers Extra Innings, the podcast powered by WTMJ Mobile, does continue on right now. Time for a social media conversation. Right now, uh, very happy to once again welcome onto the program Kyle Loebner. You can find him uh, on Twitter at Brew Frosty Mug. He does uh, the daily Frosty Mug. Uh, you can read him over at the Timber Rattlers website. You can read him uh, at Shepherd Express. He's all over the place. Uh, Kyle, always appreciate you taking some time with us. How are you doing today? I'm all right, although all over the place is a pretty good description for me these last few weeks. <laughs> it's it's better to be all over the place than be nowhere, correct? I think that's probably true, and I think the Brewer team has probably demonstrated that a little bit. Yeah, I, I think so. And you know, we 
we try to do these conversations from a big picture perspective because people listen throughout the course of the entire week. But I'm going to start with you on a question that's very specific to the Sunday afternoon game, but also kind of the philosophy of Craig Council because uh, there was a situation in the ninth inning with runners on at first and second and nobody out in a 1-1 game. Manny Pena's at the plate. Keon Broxton's due up next. Orlando Arcia after him. And Craig Council elects to let uh, Manny Pena swing away as opposed to putting down a bunt. Uh, And Council throughout his entire time with the Brewers has shown that he doesn't like to bunt with position players. That's his philosophy. Uh, Where where do you stand on that, I guess, specifically towards Sunday's game, but also uh, a big-picture standpoint with that philosophy? You know, I, I am also a solid proponent of never bunting. Um, with the exception of very extreme situations. Um, perhaps even with pitchers, I would bunt a lot less than I think most MLB managers do. I think, you know, when you put yourself in a situation where you advance the runners that way, but you waste an out, um, you open the door for a lot of things to go wrong. And you specifically mentioned, you know, Keon Broxton just now. If the Brewers bunted with Manny Pena today to bring up Keon Broxton, and Broxton had struck out, which, by the way, he does a lot, um, now you've effectively negated the threat. And so, you know, I, I think I understand the decision to let Pena swing away. Pena has hit some of the biggest late-inning home runs for the Brewers this season. And so, you know, there's a reason he's in there. There's a reason the Brewers want him to catch most days. And I think, yeah, I'm, I'm in favor of letting him swing. And in general, I think when you're having position players, um, there had better be a really good reason for it. Because most of the time, the small benefit that you're getting um, has the opportunity to be very quickly negated, especially um, across baseball right now as we see strikeout numbers going way up. So is it essentially Craig Council saying there's a better chance that Manny Pena gets a hit than Keon Broxton not striking out? No, I think it's effectively the Brewers saying we want to let all these guys swing instead of wasting it out. So we have a better chance of getting a hit all of these than we do if we from just two of these guys if we waste out to get them there. And so, yeah, I think the other thing, you know, the other possibility, it was the top of the inning. And letting Manny Pena swing away almost certainly gave you the best chance of getting a bunch of runs in that inning. Um, when you start to give away outs, the older Weaver philosophies, when you play for one, that's all you're going to get. Um, and so, you know, when you start to give away outs to advanced runners, you very quickly negate the possibility that you'll put up a cricket number. Are you concerned right now because this team is going out scoring 1-2? It's a good night recently if they put up three runs. Are you concerned uh, about the offense right now, or is this just the ebbs and flows of a baseball season? I think this is the ebbs and flows of the baseball season. I think um, the Brewers are very fortunate these last couple of weeks in that the pitching staff has been very good. Um, It has at least partially covered for um, an offense that is not doing a lot of great things with the bat right now. But I do think, yeah, that, that comes and goes over the course of the season. I think when you look at the whole body of work for this Brewer offense, it becomes readily apparent that the offense is not the problem. Um, and, and certainly there are an awful lot of guys who have been very productive on this team this year. You're going to have down days. You're going to have down weeks. Um, but I think this Brewer team is well positioned to rebound from it. 
We're talking with uh, Kyle Loebner uh, about the, about the Brewers, and uh, you mentioned the pitching. I mean, it's been spectacular when you look at what this club is is doing, and you know some of the guys that are doing it. Jim, Jimmy Nelson's taking his game to another level, but Zach Davies has been able to bounce back. In fact, you uh, a few weeks ago you you wrote a piece about Zach Davies, kind of you know looking at his win total, and it, it wasn't totally justified by how well he pitched. Well, now he's turned that around, but we're seeing other guys, whether it's a Brent Suter or a Brandon Woodruff. Uh, even though just one start as we talk on Sunday night for Woodruff, we're seeing other guys pitch really well. Um, how much of a surprise has that been for you? I think it's tremendously surprising. I mean, I think if you had said, you know, if we had outlined some of what was going to happen to this Brewer pitching staff in March, you know, if we would have talked about Willie Peralta being so ineffective that he was, you know, demoted to the bullpen and eventually designated for assignment, Junior Guerra going back to AAA, um, Chase Anderson getting hurt and missing a big chunk of time. Uh, I think you could have outlined a scenario, you know, if you would put these five guys together and said, this is going to be the Brewers starting rotation in August, what do you think their record is going to be? <laughs> I don't think there's anybody that would have put this team over 500, given that situation. And in the meantime, you know, the starting rotation is kind of carrying this team right now. Um, I will accept all the credit you're willing to give me for fixing Zach Davies by writing something negative about him. He's been on a roll since then. Um, you know, Matt Garza has been pretty good uh, when the Brewers have kind of used him correctly and kept him going deep into games, having to face the lineup a third or a fourth time. You know, Brent Suter um, was put in the rotation in case of emergency when Brandon Woodruff couldn't start a few weeks ago and had a really nice run. Brandon Woodruff looks good. You mentioned Jimmy Nelson looks really good. The starting rotation kind of feels like it is cobbled together right now. Um, it feels a little bit like it's held together with duct tape and bailing wire, but it's working. Um, and by the end of next week, it may have Chase Anderson back. From a, going, We're kind of jumping around all over the place, uh, but from an offensive standpoint, center field and second base is providing really the least amount of offense right now. You're not getting a ton from Keon Broxton. He's had a few good games since coming back, but big picture, Broxton for a while now has been scuffling. Jonathan VR all season long hasn't done much. Eric Sogard has looked like a completely different baseball player since coming uh, back from the disabled list. Are those positions that you think the Brewers still might address before uh, the waiver trade deadline coming up on August 31st? You know, I would be curious to see what the reaction would be if the Brewers did try to address center field, because I think an awful lot of people would like to see the Brewers play Lewis Brinson in center field and address it that way. Um, And I think at the end of the day, that's probably the most likely scenario, um, unless the Brewers can find a, a really great deal out on the market. Now, the infield situation is a little different, um, and the Brewers dodged a huge bullet over the weekend uh, with Travis Shaw being able to come back and play a day after uh, being hit in the neck by a throw. If Shaw had been out for any period of time, the Brewers almost certainly would have had to look externally for an infielder. Um, They would have been so shorthanded at that point that it almost would have necessitated trying to find a way to make a move. Um, With Shaw coming back, they're a little better equipped to get through, but, yeah, this still feels like... Um, a team that has a, a need at that position. And so I think, you know, for next year, you can maybe start to talk about some of the prospects. You can start to have a conversation about whether Mauricio Dubon makes his MLB debut next season. But in the short term, if this is a team that's going to compete, yeah, that is a position at second base where it looks like there's an opportunity to improve. You know, it's interesting you bring up Lewis Brinson because here's a guy who, 
yeah, he's hit the ball hard, but he yet to have he doesn't have any numbers to, you know, really show what he's done at the big league level. They're sitting here in a pennant chase trying to win, trying to get production from any in every position. That's why Keon Broxton comes back up because I think they feel like they can get maybe a little bit more at this very moment from Broxton than they were getting from Brinson. Is Brinson being hurt right now by the fact that this team is uh, contending the way they are? Yeah, I think you know, I, when you look at the, the surprise of this Brewer team, I think it caught a lot of people off guard, and I think it caught some of the, the prospect-developing people off guard because the ideal thing for this season, with the way the Brewers came in and the way the organization was lined up, would be to have an August and September where you could let Lewis Brinson play in kind of a, a consequence-free environment, um, let him see what he can do and get comfortable at the big league level. And with the Brewers contending, it's a really great problem to have, but they really don't have that luxury right now. These games count. And so if you bring Lewis Brinson up for the month of August and he experiences some growing pains and he hits 120, um, it's probably going to cost you some games. Now, you know, the, the inputs would suggest that Brinson's going to be a better hitter than that. He has been hitting the ball hard. Um, he's been having good at-bats. He's a good defensive center fielder. You know, so at the end of the day, I think the Brewers know that the long-term picture is best served by having him in there. But if you believe that the window to win is starting to open now, and it's going to happen for the next couple of years, when do you think there's going to be a good time to let Lewis Brinson experience those growing pains? Because next April, he's also going to be on a team that's expected to win. So does do you think it, it all plays into it, the fact that they got to look these guys in the face, you know, in the clubhouse. And, you know, these guys who have played to a first-place level for the vast majority of the season have to feel like the team that's being put out there is the team that gives them the best chance to win? Yeah, I mean, I think some of it's that. I mean, uh, this is a Brewer team. I wrote about this for Shepard Express a few weeks ago. You know, this is a Brewer team that is in a position, um, they were certainly in a position a few weeks ago, and to a lesser extent they probably still are now. This might be the best chance the Brewers have to win the NL Central anytime in the next five years. Um, even if the rebuild goes swimmingly, even if they average 92 wins a year for the next five years, you could draw a scenario where playing the Cubs every year, playing the Cardinals every year, playing a Pirates team that's got a lot of young talent on it, that 92 wins is never going to be enough to win the Central um, over the next five years on paper. And so I think they have to recognize, at least to a point, um, and at the trade deadline, they, they did not jump on the possibility to maximize this. But you have to recognize that this might be the best chance this Brewer team has to make the playoffs without having to be the wild card at any point during the rebuilding process. And so they do kind of owe it to these guys, and they owe it to the fans, and they owe it to themselves to try to maximize what they have right now. But they're trying to balance that with building for the future, and there's a lot of question marks that go with that, along with who are you willing to trade, you know, how are you willing to handle guys who might be a big part of your future but are scuffling now? You know, and so there's challenges in there to try to balance that but still acknowledge the fact that this is August and this Brewer team is significantly more relevant than anybody expected them to be. Yeah, it's it, – I thought – I said this in July that I was expecting this team to be more active in August than in July if they stay in it. And this past week, with the Cubs losing some games and the Brewers taking two out of three against Tampa, wouldn't all signs point towards them keeping this thing a race all the way down the stretch and maybe making uh, multiple moves before August? You know, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I still think um, 
I'm less optimistic about this Brewer team right now than I was when they were, you know, five and a half up at the All-Star break. I think there's a, it's a much harder thing to do to prove or to make a point that this Brewer team has a chance to be better than the Cubs down the stretch. Um, you know, when we were talking about mid-July and all this Brewer team had to do was avoid being six games worse than the Cubs, that's a much lower bar to clear. Now, this Cubs team has demonstrated that even, uh, you know, even when they are getting better, they are still vulnerable at times. Um, and they showed it this week. You know, as the Brewers were able to gain a couple games back on Sunday, they missed an opportunity to take the lead in the division again. But I still think, you know, in a neck-and-neck race, you have to consider the Cubs as the favorite right now. And unless the Brewers make some big moves um, to do that, I think, you know, even getting Chase Anderson back, even getting healthy, um, the Cubs, with all the talent they have and the history that they have, you know, having just won the World Series a year ago, have to be seen probably by most, you know, national by most national folks and probably even some internally um, as the favorite to win this division. So what a perfect world. I mean, Justin Verlander's name has been thrown about. I don't know if they've got the financial ability, even if the Tigers were to pick up some of that salary, plus the prospects you would have to give up. In a perfect world, going for the division, what kind of moves would you like to see the Brewers make before August 31st? You know, I think the Verlander deal is a, a very interesting possibility, and I would be surprised to discover that the Brewers actually don't have the financial wherewithal to make it work. You know, when, when you look at what they are paying in payroll right now um, and how this season has gone versus what they expected, they have to be in a situation where they are making tens of millions of dollars more than they expected to make this season. You know, just based on ticket sales down the stretch, um, this was a, a Brewer team coming into the year that kind of projected to be irrelevant by the time the Packers rolled around. And now that the Packers are here and they're still relevant, um, they're probably going to sell a few more tickets to August September than they expected. And so when you look at a, a guy like that and how he fits into an organization that probably has some financial flexibility in the short term and certainly has it in the long term, uh, you have the opportunity for Verlander to be a guy who takes some pressure off the front end of your starting pitching staff, you know, who projects to be maybe your game one playoff starter should you be lucky enough to make it there, and additionally has been a good clubhouse guy, has the experience winning, and with the boost of coming from the American League to the National League, it could be a real boon for your pitching staff. So I think it does make a lot of sense to consider a guy like Verlander. Now, I don't know what it would take to get that deal done. Um, it's possible that if you're willing to eat enough of that salary, the Tigers would be willing to cut a, a decent deal on him. But I'm not in the room. I, I don't know, you know what those negotiations look like. Before I let you go, I want to talk a little Wisconsin Timber Rattlers as you, uh, you're you up in that area and you, you watch this team. Keston Hira, what, what's your take on, on what this guy has been able to do since becoming a, a pro? Yeah, Keston Hira, um, as of yesterday, he had played 32 games as a professional. He had multiple hits in 18 of them. Mm. Um, his bat is every bit as good as advertised and a little bit more. Um, probably, to be honest, probably a little bit too good. Um, to be in the Midwest League at this point. He probably belongs above that. He is still um, not playing the field, and there's not a certain timetable for when we will see him play the field for the first time. And so that's a little bit of the challenge with this game, is that we are still not seeing you know, Keston Hira as the complete player because he is still just a DH and has never played anything but that position as a professional. But, you know, it's, it's almost becoming... You know, ho-hum, Keston here another two-hit game today. He drove in a couple runs, and the Timber Rattlers had an opportunity to win the game because of him. 
Um, it, it's amazing how quickly, with his consistency, he just kind of slots into the middle of the lineup and you almost forget about him a little bit. But it's been a real treat to have an opportunity to watch him play these last few weeks. Hopefully fans will take an opportunity to do it these next few weeks uh, before the Midwest League season ends. Chase Anderson is going to uh, uh, come down and rehab with the club uh, on Tuesday. and seems like there's been a few rehab guys this year, and obviously the Timberettles being so close to, to Milwaukee, it, uh, it works out well. Uh, what, I guess just in what kind of impact have you seen these guys make, whether it was you know, Braun and VR earlier this season, whoever it might be, uh, the, the impact these guys make when they come down in uh, rehab? You know, it, it's always interesting when rehabbers come down because every situation is a little bit different. Um, there have been guys, you know, in the past who come in, um, they've got their entourage with them in the clubhouse, they, they really don't talk to anybody, they kind of just do their own thing and they go home. Uh, this year, the guys the Timber Rattlers have had have been universally great um, in terms of coming up, you know, hanging out in the clubhouse, answering questions with guys, letting guys pick their brain, um, and kind of helping these guys along in the process. And this Timber Rattlers team, uh, there was a, a significant point in this season, uh, the few games that Jonathan Viar and Ryan Braun were here. Um, they were both, you know, very gracious with their teammates. They were both good to have around for a few days. Uh, they were still in the clubhouse after games, whereas a lot of rehabbers kind of get their work done for the day and then get out of there as soon as they can. Um, they were really, you know, kind of a part of this team for a couple weeks or for, for a week when they were here. And it really made a big impact on these guys. And I think, you know, from a kind of nuts and bolts perspective, sometimes getting an opportunity to work alongside a big leaguer gives you an opportunity to pick up a new habit or to see something you've been doing wrong and improve your game. Um, but having guys that come into the clubhouse and are true professionals um, and demonstrate how a professional carries themselves, you know, how a, how a big leaguer handles situations, um, that almost has a bigger impact on these guys as they try to strive to be you know, where Braun and VR are someday. So I think, yeah, it's been a really great thing for the Timber Rattlers team to have an opportunity to see so many big leaguers this season with another one coming up this week. I'm going to kind of put you on the spot here because I don't know how much you know about this, but I saw this uh, on the Timber Rattlers website where uh, the club is going to be installing some solar panels and uh, to create some energy, save a little bit of money, so, you know, be a little bit more green. Do you know what, what led to this? I mean, this is pretty cool, I think, that, uh, that solar panels are going to be put uh, on top of the stadium. You know, I'm not real familiar with the, the project itself, but I think it's a great idea. Um, you know, certainly anytime you get an opportunity to use these facilities um, as a, a positive for the community in ways that extend beyond baseball, I think it's a really good thing. And so I think for the Timber Rattlers, hopefully this is a, a mutually beneficial thing where they can do the right thing to be a little bit greener and hopefully reap some of the benefits of it as well. He is uh, Kyle Loebner. Again, you can uh, follow him on Twitter at BrewFrostyMug. He uh, tweets out his uh, the, the, the daily, the Frosty Mug every day, which uh, you can really keep up to date with everything going on uh, Brewers-related uh, through that. Uh, read him at the Timber Rattlers uh, website, also uh, at Shepherd Express. Express excuse me. Uh, Kyle, it's always great to uh, take some time from you. Appreciate it, and uh, we look forward to talking to you again uh, down the line. Hey, my pleasure. Take care. The future of the Brewers organization has never been more important than it is right now. It's time to get an inside look at what's taking place throughout the Brewers minor league affiliates as we go down on the farm. Brewers Extra Innings, the podcast powered by WTMJ Mobile. We do continue on 
Always enjoy doing this as we go down on the farm. Uh, every few weeks we try to bring in uh, one of our uh, minor league guys to not just focus in on one team in the Brewers organization, but kind of get a uh, look back at the entire organization and bringing in one of our favorite folks. He is uh, Brad Ford. You can uh, read him over a Brew Crew ball. He uh, really takes a look and watches everything going on throughout the minor league system. Again, follow him on Twitter at uh, Brew Crew Blue. Brad, always good to talk to you. How are you doing? I'm doing great and always happy to be on. Let's, uh, before we start doing anything specific, uh, MLB Pipeline this past week uh, did a re-ranking. They also uh, ranked all the organizations. Uh, the Brewers dropped down a couple spots. I think that was more because Josh Hader graduated to the big leagues than, uh, than anything else. But in terms of the MLB Pipeline update from this past week, uh, did anything strike you? Um, no, not specifically. Um, I think there were things, some things to note, especially in the top 30 changes. Uh, one is one of the previously you know, considered gems of the system who really hasn't been performing, Gilbert Lara, uh, fell off for the first time since he's been signed. Before that, I mean, leading into the season, he's almost been top 10 every update. Uh, when he came in, he was 17, and now he's fallen off. He's just been, he's still very young, so there's still room for him to fix all his issues. But in terms of what the Brewers were hoping they'd get, he's been very, very disappointing. Um, and, I mean, I don't think he was hitting, I think he hit over 200 for maybe a week during the season and then dropped under and has been under since um, and just really hasn't been able to handle many of the challenges thrown at him throughout his minor league career period. Um, and that especially showed this year. Uh, what's really surprising is he was advertised when they signed him as a guy with huge power, and that hasn't really showed. In fact, his slugging percentage at Wisconsin was 269 heading in her before he was dropped down to Helena, and then he got her Helena, and then he got injured um, and isn't playing right now. So hopefully, sometime at rookie ball can help fix that. But otherwise. Um, the only other surprising thing was uh, having a couple of international prospects on the back end of the top 30 uh, with Larry Ernesto and Carlos Rodriguez. And then Javon Ward coming in when they did the update at 30, he's now at 29. Uh, with Ward, uh, he was actually the number 12 pick this year. So he comes in above uh, some of the other interesting candidates like uh, Nick Eggentuck, who I spoke with. Um, I thought he would actually go ahead, but apparently MLB Pipeline really likes the tool set Javon Ward's working with, um, and so far he's actually been pretty successful at with Arizona Brewers, so uh, that'll be an interesting one to watch. So, I say this, I know nothing about Javon Ward, so that being said, I look at his picture, I mean, this guy, he looks like a big dude, he looks, uh, he looks the part already. Yeah, he's huge, 6'5", um, <laughs> Uh, he's still a little lanky, hasn't hit 200 pounds yet, but he has uh, major league heritage in his bloodline uh, and at, just athletic heritage. I believe his uncle was an NFL player. Um, so his or his blood uh, is pretty well, uh, well set in like athletic ability. Uh, the only thing is he didn't really show it, and that's why he didn't get drafted till the 12th round. Hmm. Um, he wasn't really able to put the bat the ball as much as you'd like. Uh, his, he's fast, but his when he was playing the outfield, he wasn't really taking great angles. 
Um, so the hope is kind of that as he edges out of puberty, that eventually he masters all that raw talent and puts something really special together. And if he does, you end up with a guy who should have gone in the first or second round if he can start to put some of that talent to actually use in the game. But heading into his pro career, he wasn't. So it, that's why I was really surprised that he made the list because all the reports you read were like, yeah, this guy should be great on paper based on like his bloodline and what he's been able to put together in, in like terms of workout numbers. Uh, he re- runs a really fast 60, but he just hasn't been able to show that on the field. So far, he's doing okay uh, with the Arizona Brewers. Um, every now and then, he'll like put together like two game streaks where he has a couple doubles and goes like four for eight, and then he'll have three or four games where he's oh for twelve and doesn't really put anything together. Um, and he's already striking out a lot, but a lot of the high schoolers do. He's only seventeen; doesn't turn eighteen until October. So you don't really get worried about the strikeouts at that age yet. But he's a huge athletic dude, and if he can actually start putting some of that ability you see into use in baseball games, he'll be something special. I don't know as much about these guys as you do, and I look through the top 30, and the only thing that jumped out at me was – I can't have a conversation about the Wisconsin Timber Rattlers without hearing great stories about Mario Feliciano. And I see him at 25, and that surprised me a little bit. I thought he might be a little bit, uh, a little bit higher. Am I, am I right? Am I wrong? Or do we just not know? I'm really, really, really high on Feliciano. He was, they say in their ranking, that he was preseason 24, where he was preseason 23. Um, so a little bit of his move is less about performance and more about the system just adding guys, like Keston Hira, Tristan Lutz, and those players jumping up, and K.J. Harrison jumping up on the little list, automatically push you back a little bit. So the fact that there's, I believe, four new players ahead of him um, who weren't on the top 30 at all actually means he moved up a little bit in your net game. Um, but still, I think he should be in the upper teens. Um, he is isn't as defensively challenged as Jacob Nottingham. A lot of things, in my opinion, that he needs to learn in order to play the position behind the plate is are things that normally need to be taught. They're hard to learn, but like a lot, if you have a catching prospect where you only need to teach them certain skill sets, like getting a quicker release on the ball, or you know, just the art of calling the game, you're off to a good start with your uh, prospect. He does miss a few or miss a few balls. Again, he's I think he's only 18 this season, so yeah, he's 18 through November. Um, he has a pretty good bat. Uh, I was surprised, actually. They kind of gave him an aggressive assignment because he was 17 last year, played in the Arizona League, comes up this year into Wisconsin, uh, and we've seen them do that before with young guys they are high on. They'll put him in Wisconsin, but normally at the halfway point, they go back to Helena. That he didn't go back to Helena and is still with Wisconsin is a testament to how high the team's on him and how well he's been performing. He hasn't struck out a whole lot for someone his age. Uh, he's walking actually quite a bit. And uh, before the halfway point, he actually had a pretty good slugging percentage. Uh, but a lot of that's dropping up because it's starting to drop. But it's his first season of pro ball uh, where he's played a full season. So it's kind of to be expected. He's playing against better talent. He's been keeping up. 
he's handled the more advanced pitching staff pretty well. I think he has seven or eight pass balls, which is more than you would like, but he's probably also seen breaking stuff that breaks a lot more than he's seen before. Um, and to be honest, especially in the first half of the year, he wasn't dealing with the greatest pitching staff, and he had a lot of wild-throwing pitchers. Now he's starting to get better, especially as Zach Brown and Josh Pennington kind of fall into their roles. Um, so I'm really excited about him, and I actually probably would have put him in 18 or higher. All right, so we're on the same page on that one. Yep. All right, very That's good. That's my long way of saying, yes, you're completely right. <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's start going through the teams a bit, and we can't talk about AAA Colorado Springs without talking about its relation to uh, what's going on at the big league level, and specifically with Lewis Brinson. Uh, he's back down at, at AAA, hasn't found uh, the traction yet at the big league level that you'd like to have. If the team wasn't contending, he'd probably be playing every day, but with the team uh, needing production from center field, he ends up going back down to AAA. What's your take right now on what's going on uh, with Lewis Brinson? Uh, I think, so, my thought on the Keon Braxton move is that they know that they need to move an outfielder or give up an outfielder. They rather not just cut one of their major league outfielders and keep Braxton Domingo. They're definitely not cutting Brian Braun. They're definitely not cutting Domingo, and they'd rather not cut Keon. So they want him to get on one of those hot streaks that he gets on, where he hits a bunch of home runs, steals a bunch of bases, and is on base constantly. Come up his trade value. Now, I think they'd still like at this point to be getting Lewis Brinson major league at bats, but they don't want him to play every fourth or fifth day. So rather than wasting his talent, they want to get a regular at bat. Um, a lot of people look at his stat line and see a guy who struggled at the major leagues, but he was making a, the second trip. He was making extremely hard contact. His batting average on balls in play was only 107, which means you're having a lot of bad luck if it's that low, especially with the hard contact he was having. Um, I feel if they would have let him stay up, he, you would have started seeing what he's done in, with the Sky Sox on the major league field. So I was personally a little disappointed in the move, but I get it. You, in the winter meetings, you're probably going to want to try to move one of Keon or Domingo to get major league talent that can help you. They're young, controllable outfielders with, who both have a ton of skills. So If they can get Keon hot, they probably just want to get action on him. Tim, I I hear what you're saying, and it's not that I explicitly disagree with it, but maybe maybe I give too much credit to Major League Baseball executives, and I should watch more closely during the winter meetings when ridiculous uh, numbers are being thrown around. But shouldn't Major League Baseball executives be smart enough not to allow a hot streak from a from an outfielder to maybe change what they value somebody at? If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> and 90% of them are. 10% make insane decisions where you look at it on paper and you don't do it. Um, and I don't think they're necessarily looking to get like a world-beater trade out of it, but I'm, if you see Domingo's skill set and you've seen it multiple times and they think, hey, maybe I can get him under control just a little bit more and get a little bit more out of that, you can maybe get a player of some value. And I think that's the goal is to get – I think David Stearns is the type of GM who wants something rather than nothing. Um, but as we saw, sometimes he's forced into taking nothing when he had to cut Chris Carter, when he had to cut 
um, Scooter Jeanette, and one went on to have some success, the other didn't. Um, sometimes you're just forced into a situation where you do have to lose them, and I think he's trying to avoid that. Additionally, I think he, in the middle of the pennant chase, I do think a lot of it has to do with trying to win the division with a outfielder who has major league experience. Um, I just personally don't like seeing a guy who has shown he has no business being in AAA anymore at AAA. I would rather, much rather Lewis being the one playing and then letting Keon continue to do what he does in AAA and then seeing if you can, can't get a low minor league guy for him who might have some hope for and is wild. Um, but I do think you're right. I do think most guys are smart. However, sometimes, I mean, you know how execs get. They see something they really like or scouts see something they really like when a player's hot like that, and they obsess over it. So I think they're hoping someone just does does some obsessing because he's a guy of great talent. He has a bunch of great tools you'd love to see in any player, and I hope they're he, they're hoping he puts that on display and kind of shows, even if he can play up to level or make up for what he's done this year and play to the level that he did last year, I hope I think they're hoping that comes around and then he just has some value for them in the winter trade meetings. All right, so it's kind of the same question with Brett Phillips. He was he was kind of gaining some traction at the end of his last big league uh, time, and uh, they they end up sending him down. What's your thoughts on on where he should be right now? Uh, I mean, he's definitely ready for the majors. Uh, I am less adamant with him than I am Brinson, uh, mainly because Brinson definitely has substantially higher potential, in my opinion. Um. But I think they know with Brett Phillips, it's just going to be one of those things where either they need to clear out time for him or they're not going to have room for him because they want Princeton to be the guy. So, again, it's always better to get regular at-bats than have a guy riding the bench. Um, I kind of actually, and I've suggested before, would like one of them to come up and give guys more regular days off. and Rather than using Hernan Perez all the time, using a Brett Phillips or Lewis Brinson to play three or four times a week while giving Keon, Domingo, and Ron especially regular time off. And I think if you're going to do that with either of them, I think you'd want to do that with Brett because he's... I feel like you do less damage to him from letting him get slightly less regular at bat. One of the guys who so far has been... I mean, the numbers are, I think, are a little bit surprising, even at uh, an offensive, uh, you know, Pacific Coast League. Mauricio Dubon sitting 287 through 35 games. Is this guy positioning himself to be in the mix for a big league job next spring? Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> he is very, very, very exciting. And I think he's one of, maybe it's him and Keston who have a plus hit tool and. Well, him, Keston, and Brinson, or Brinson, who have a plus hit tool in the system. So he makes contact with everything. He doesn't strike out that much, um, and he walks a good amount. Uh, and he just has a really interesting tool set. I think he's um, – if VR continues what he's been doing, and it certainly doesn't look like he's coming out of his slump anytime soon. He hasn't in four months, why would he now? I think they, that Dubon could even get some regular playing time in September, and then it'll be whoever plays the best come spring 
fiscal position if DR is even still on the roster. Uh, Dubon might be making the major league execs comfortable enough where now VR becomes expendable. He doesn't walk a ton, but he also doesn't strike out a ton, and he just makes contact with everything. Uh, I don't think he's going to be as good of a base dealer as he is in the minors and the majors. Uh, I mean, for Biloxi, he's still 31 bags. Um, I think you're talking more of 20, 25 in the majors, but he could also be developed if they want him in the majors next year into quite the utility guy. When he was first traded for, a lot of scouts were talking about he's a pretty good second baseman, he's a pretty good shortstop, but he's a really, really quick and fun-to-watch outfielder who actually can patrol center field very well. So he might be a guy who at some point becomes another Hernan and maybe like keep both and just try to get them regular at-bats. But I think he is fighting for second base come spring. Let's jump to Double uh, A, and really from a Double A perspective, I think we look more at the the pitchers than the hitters on that group. And uh, Corbin Burns, I mean, this guy just keeps going, right? Yeah, and I always quote myself for what I told you when he first came up from Single A. But I didn't think he was going to have any problems at Double A because even though pitching's better at Double A those players still struggle greatly with advanced pitching. And Corbin Burns, this is a guy who knows how to pitch. He works the zone incredibly well. His fastball velocity is up a little bit. I think when I was listening to his strikeout last time, he hit 98 uh, on one of the strikeouts. And he is just, he knows how to mix his pitches, and he mixes them very well. Um, so it doesn't surprise me. It surprises me a little bit that he's doing as well as he was. I didn't quite expect him to take off on the same foot he had with the Mudcats as he is now with the Shuckers. But, I mean, he's a legit pitcher, and I feel like you shouldn't get excited about him as a potential ace when you're looking at a stance. But if you're – I think Garza in his good years, like the Tampa years, is about what his ceiling's at, and I would be. I think everyone should be really excited about that, regardless. Do, do they get um, a no hitter out of him too? What was that? Oh, yeah, get... definitely. <laughs> I think that's a real possibility when you watch him. Actually, dude, not his stuff's not super advanced. It's not uh, when you talk about grades. He's not getting sixties and seventies across the board on his pitches. And that's probably the biggest thing that limits him on his ace potential. But when it's on, it's still good enough that people can't touch it. And he is one of those guys who can come up and not be an ace, but still throw no hitter just because he can keep hitters off balance with the way he mixes his pitches. So maybe maybe he's the second Brewers no hitter, and then in a few years, Jet Bandy will be calling play call, her uh, play-by-play and talking about how he caught the Brewers' second no-hitter and reminding us of that all the time. That's funny. And, and for people who don't totally know the reference, also uh, Matt Garza threw, threw no-hitter at Tampa Bay. So uh, when you make the Garza reference, that's uh, that's where I was going with that. But anyways, um, Jorge Lopez back, becoming kind of the closer there. I don't know if he's officially – he's getting a lot of save opportunities, it seems like. Uh, him and him and Matt Ramsey have, uh, have had a number of saves. Is this – What's the potential for Lopez as a bullpen guy? Because we've seen him kind of regress as a starter. Uh, I think the bullpen's where he should be. Uh, you, he had that one year of pretty good control in the minor league system, 
um, where everyone got high. He became a top system uh, prospect. He has really hard stuff, but he can't control it as well as you want to start it to. And especially the first time through uh, group seeing him, he is really, really hard to hit. Uh, you saw when he first started taking on the bullpen roll for Biloxi, he did struggle a little bit, but now he's starting to get used to throwing in those short spurts. And, I mean, his fastball really plays up. It was in the high 90s as a starter. Now it's more consistently high 90s, but he only has to use it in shorter time periods. Um, his curveball is really hard to deal with when he can put everything behind his fastball. Then you see this change of pace that drops off the table. He And he already has he has a pretty good starter's mix. He just can't control it. So to come out, have three pitches, and be able to throw as hard as he can, he has the potential to be a great reliever, whereas I think he probably would have been a four or five if he ever made it to the major starter, and it wouldn't be a long-term thing. It'd be one of those things where he's a four or five for three or four years, and then he gets cut and goes to a different team, kind of like Willie Peralta. I feel they're doing the right thing with him now, and they're going to get the most out of him in this role. Are you buying Nick Ramirez? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, he has caught me so much guard. I expected when they transitioned him to pitcher to just get blown up, to be honest with you. And here he is with a sub-2 ERA. All the peripherals are behind him. He doesn't have a great strikeout rate, but it's gotten better as he's continued pitching. <laughs> People just can't score on him. And... It's easy to brush it off if he had pitched for a few years, but he went four or five years in the system without throwing a pitch, only playing first base. So it's hard not to take him seriously. And you watch him out there, and his stuff looks legit. He looks like he knows how to pitch, and he looks pretty good at it. So I wouldn't be surprised if he relieves in the majors for a few years and is pretty good at it. I don't think he's going to be a long-term player. It's turns out having a 10-15 year career he's already pretty old for the system I think he's 27 but I mean it's a pretty fascinating transition especially because not only is he pitching around a 1-5 ERA but he also is hitting the crap out of the ball when yeah. he gets the opportunity and regularly getting pinch hit appearances and play time at first base yeah he pitches out of the bullpen then he stays in the game it's ridiculous right I mean we've as Brewers fans have had that before, um, <laughs> it'd be really great to have it again. It's just fascinating. It really is. Um, especially because he seems to hit better now that he's only hitting part-time than he did when he was a full-time player. I mean, he could, had struggled hitting in double-A, and that was the reason he finally converted over, back over to pitcher. And here he is dominating as a hitter when he gets his limited opportunities. Granted, it's an extremely small sample size. Uh, and just dominating as a pitcher on the other side where people can't touch him. It, I think like his FIP is 3-4-1, and that backs up his ERA. Or, well, his ERA is substantially lower than that, but you rarely expect an FIP to be that low. Um, if he can start striking out, consistently striking out more, because right now he's around like 6K per nine, I mean, he's legit. They... They've got a decision to make on him in the offseason. Don't you have to at least get him up to AAA soon to figure out a little bit more about who he is? 
I wouldn't be surprised if he was a September call-up. Um, I think they're afraid with him being transitioning. I mean, you've seen the devastation that AAA firsthand can, or Colorado Springs firsthand can wreck on pitchers. So when you're still in the first year of transitioning a guy back to pitching, I think that's something they're kind of scared to avoid. But yeah, if they don't do something with him soon, they lose him completely. So I think he'll probably get some low leverage situations in September, and we'll see if he they think he can handle it that way by actually facing big league hitters. All right, let's jump uh, to the Carolina Mudcats high A. And uh, Corey Ray, still not really putting it all together. His month of July, he hits below 200 at 193. We're talking on Sunday night through six games, uh, 240 in the, in the month of August. Not that you're worried about him. And again, he's been put, you know, he's been aggressively placed. But at some point, wouldn't it be nice to, to see him get going? Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's, I mean, the guy, I, uh, Bernie Plaskoff just wrote up a summary, uh, his own scouting report, Corey Ray, and he says, you consistently see on the field everything you saw in Louisville that made him such a highly regarded prospect, but for some reason, what he was able to do then isn't working right now at A+. And, I mean... 241, 318, 378 for a slash line isn't going to get you anywhere. And it's not exciting anybody. Um, his power is, I mean, you hear stories about him hitting in batting practice and hitting these mammoth home runs, and it really doesn't show. Most of his doubles are long singles that he's able to use his blazing speed to turn into doubles. Um, but you really don't see that home run power that was advertised coming with him. He only has six homers so far this season. Um, he's at least been successful on the base pass and has been a pretty good center fielder defensively. So at most, the speed aspect of his game is working, but the hit and power that was advertised with him just isn't there. And you watch him, <laughs> it sounds stupid, but it's true. You watch him and he looks, like a really good ball player. He has this gorgeous swing. It's very Ryan Braun-esque. Ryan Braun is one of the best swings I've seen in my time observing baseball. And Corey Ray has a beautiful swing like that. He just swings over the top of everything. He has a massive strikeout percentage. He isn't walking that much to take advantage of his speed. So it's not like you can maybe say, okay, the power's not there. One day we can transition him into a leadoff hitter who can walk and steal a bunch of bases. No, he's striking out a ton. Uh, I mean, close to Keon rate, just at low A or high A. Um, I, it's becoming hard to defend him. Um, he definitely has every, all the tools are still there. He doesn't look like he should be failing. So you just hope that at some point he puts it together, but it's getting harder and harder to hope. A lot of people pay attention to Lucas Ersig because of what he did with the big league club in spring training. He's really only had one good month this year, and all the other months when you you know go month by month, uh, he's been okay. Before spring training, if he wouldn't have done what he did at spring training, nobody would be saying a word about this, but there's some added expectations because of uh, what he did when he was with the big league club in spring. What's your takeaway on, on what he's been able to do this year? Um, I think, so last year he also had a lot of success 
contest with the Timber Rattlers. I uh, got a lot of prospect watchers like myself pretty excited in his ability. Uh, what I'm hearing from scouts is he is still still looks like the player you saw last year. It's just, you know, last year he happened to have a really good run against kind of the competition he was facing before, and now is the first time in a long time uh, since he was moved to his community college that he's seen uh, more advanced college pitching. So he's learning to adjust to that, and every now and then he'll have a week or five games where he puts it together and looks exactly like he did in big league training. Um, I mean, the thing is with spring training, you normally get a lot of guys throwing meatballs over the plate because they're working on something. So we always hear like when players do very well and then drop off immediately in April, well, they're getting a bunch of easier pitches because the pitcher is not pitching them according to a scouting report. The pitcher is pitching them according to what they want to work on. So it's easier to take advantage of people. So currently you're seeing a guy who is struggling with more advanced pitching. The good thing is he's not striking out a whole lot. His K rate's only at 17%, which is pretty good actually, especially for a power hitter. You're still seeing a good amount of power out of him. You, it just, you're not consistently seeing him string together good hits. So I think I don't think it's even anything to worry about, to be honest. He, he still shows it all. Um, he defensively, he's still really, really fun to watch. He has a crazy strong arm at third base, um, where you see him make picks and throw it over. I don't say it lightly, uh, and he probably doesn't have the same range. But in terms of our strength, it's Nolan Arenado-esque. He can make every throw Arenado can make. Um, and I hate to make comparisons like that. Uh, if he can start walking a little bit more and just making a little bit more hard contact, I mean, you'll definitely see his numbers come back up. He just has had a little bit of bad luck, um, but he's still doing everything right, and you might see him repeat with the Mudcats next year. And if he does, I'd expect that he'd take off right away again and be back up with everyone who makes it to Biloxi next year. Uh, another guy who's kind of interesting and, and you don't know where he stands is Monte Harrison, just with everything he's been through. Do you still believe in this guy? Uh, yeah. It's funny. Everyone was on his hype train last week because he went off, uh, had a uh, defensive play that made the sport number one play on Sports Center, and then had a game after that, had a two home run game, and then after that, had a three for five game where he hit another home run. And no one was stopped talking about him, and now he hasn't really done anything the last few days, and everyone's cooled on him. Uh, I'm still pretty high on Monte. Um, something you always hear become kind of cliche in the scouting world is it takes players like Monte, who played three sports in high school, a little bit longer to develop. They tend to struggle because they haven't really focused on baseball. So this is the first time they're really focused on baseball. And when he's been healthy, he's put together good games. Um, he had a pretty good season with the T-Rats, um, enough to get him back up with everyone he was drafted with with the Mudcats and catch up to that 2014 class. He's still pretty young. He's actually younger than Corey Ray. Um, so, And he's still... Even despite his contact struggles, he's still hitting the crap out of the ball. Um, I still am pretty high on him. I still think he can be a pretty special player. Um, 
Is it special like Keon Broxton, where he has a bunch of tools, makes it to the major league, and just only flashes every now and then? Possibly, but I think he is a player who can, who has one of the higher ceilings of all of the minor leaguers. Um, in the top prospect rankings, you saw him jump from low twenties or mid twenties to the high or to fourteen in the top thirty on MLB.com. And I think that shows that. Now that he's healthy and he's playing full season, he's really demonstrating all those tools that you saw before, especially his power. It's great to see his power come back into play. He has, between the two uh, levels uh, with Carolina and Wisconsin, 19 homers. If you count the two he hit in the All-Star game, he has 21, and a selfie at home plate. But (laughs) I think he's legit, um, and he'll be in the major league someday. Um, whether that's as a very special player or just a pretty good contributor, we'll see. But I think he makes it to the major someday. The way that roster is constructed, we could literally spend the entire podcast just talking about those guys. So we're um, we're going to move on to the, we're going to move on to the Timber Rattlers. I know there's been guys that I, I probably should have asked you about that we ran out of time on, but. Uh, the guy who's made it's tough to find a guy in this draft class for any team that's made a bigger splash than Keston Hira, who's just killing it, continues to kill it with the Timber Rattlers. Uh, yeah, I before the draft, I wrote a couple of preview pieces for Drew Crew Ball, uh, one of which focused on college hitters, and I brought up Keston and said, you know, this guy is such a good hitter that even though he's ranked in, like, mid-20s on almost every pre-draft ranking list, I would actually love to see him go nine for the Brewers. And when they drafted him, I started watching video and reading more and reading more, and I got really excited about him. His bat is super legitimate. We've already seen it. He's hitting near 400. Uh, He's only had one game where he hasn't reached base so far in his pro career. Um, Other than that, he has two hitless games, but the other one, he walked three times. Um, he's not walking a bunch at Wisconsin, but when you're making good contact and hitting 400, who cares? Uh, he did just have four walks in two games. But, I mean, the guy is just, he has the best bat in the system. It's not a question to me. You can't talk me out of it. He has, <laughs> in terms of making contact and average, the best bat. Um, it's just about now seeing him defensively, which we should in the next week or two, actually see him start to play his position. I believe they're starting him at second base. Uh, and if he can field adequately, he's going to be. He'll pass Ethan Diaz in no time as the second base prospect. And uh, might even, if Dubon's the starter at second base, might even come up and just steal the role from him and turn Dubon into a utility player. I think he's going to be a fast mover. As long as he can play adequate defense, he's going to cruise through the system. He's a really exciting guy to watch. Okay. It would be nice to start seeing a little bit more power from him. So this, those are interesting comments from you because you know a lot more about this than I do. I spent two years working in the Midwest League, and it was a pretty normal thing for maybe a, a low-drafted four-year college guy or an undrafted four-year college guy to come into the Midwest League, have a lot of success, go up to high A, and it just be a different world. You know, college guys tend to have success in that league. Even if it's the big league, it's at some point Keston here is going to run into 
something. I mean, he's you know he's gonna at some point he's gonna have to start making adjustments. He doesn't have a major league swing right now, I would assume. At what po- at what point in the system is it? Double A, is it Triple A, is it the big leagues? At what point do you feel like his swing and his ability is really gonna start to be tested? Um, I think the first time, I think you're right. In a, uh, probably when he gets to Carolina next year, he's going to have to make some adjustments. Um, you're, I mean, we were just talking about Lucas Ersig. He ran into what you were talking about. In Wisconsin A, you have some, or with, I'm sorry, low A, you have some good collegiate picture, pitchers, some junior college pitchers, and then a lot of high school pitchers, especially that time of the year, because you're, that's when people are being moved up the system. And a lot of times you're seeing guys only in their third, fourth start at their A-ball team because they're coming up and clearing room on the airs or on their rookie league roster. So you see a guy's taking care of a lot of or advanced hitters, especially the college ones, taking advantage of that. I think that's why last year we saw Corey Ray go straight to A-plus because they didn't want him to be easy pitching. They wanted to see what he was like against. Uh, more established pitchers who know how to work the zone. That being so, he probably will face some challenges, but his hand-eye coordination and his swing, and just the way he's able to make something out of nothing, is extremely strong. Where I think his challenge is going to be him hitting two seventy, two eighty for a month, making an adjustment and then going back to hitting above 300. I'm very, very high on him, um, along with a lot of other scouts I've read who said, you know, a lot of people are giving him a safe grade of a 60 bat, but I saw some people giving him a 70, 75, which is outrageous. That's Jose Altuve. I don't want to say his expectations for him are Jose Altuve because they shouldn't be. They should be, like, if he can be a 280, 300 hitter, second base with 15 to 20 home runs, that'll be excellent. But, I mean, the dude has a bunch of potential inside that bat, and with his hand-eye coordination alone, he can really make... And I think he just makes quick adjustments where when he does get challenged, when he does hit that bump in the road, probably to start next year, or in the second month of next year, when he's probably starting with Carolina, um, he'll make the adjustment quick enough, and he'll continue climbing through the system pretty quickly. Uh, before we let you go, let's go to a couple of short season teams. Actually, we'll we'll be more with Helena because they've got some guys there I want to talk about. Let's start with uh, KJ Harrison. Seventeen games, three fifty nine. Uh, whether it's his defense at the plate, whatever he's doing, what have you what have you seen so far, and what uh, Harrison's been able to do? Uh, well, he's got power in him. That's for sure. Uh, he's a big guy, and when you, he's not huge, but he's, he's stocky. And when you see him make contact with the ball, it, he punishes it. Um, he's got a very nice, clean, easy swing. It doesn't take a lot of time to get through the zone. It's a little long right now, um, but it's something that will be fixed mechanically. I think this is more when we're talking about collegiate players taking advantage of lesser pitching. I think that's what we're seeing right now with KJ. But it's important to the Brewers to give him more or a lesser of a hitting challenge because they're also working with him on catching. So for the first time, except for a couple of games collegiately that he caught, he's being made to catch somewhat regularly since he was a high schooler. 
he looks confident behind the plate for the level he's catching. He's still a little stiff, uh, doesn't come out of his stance very well. A few people have kind of bullied him with steals. He's gotten a couple of caught stealings because he has a pretty good arm. Um, I'm not really sure. I trust the Brewer scouting system if they think he has a chance to catch, but he does. But it's something he's going to have to put a lot of work into, and that's why they start him off at Helena, because otherwise his bat's good enough to be in Wisconsin with the other collegiate hitters like uh, Dallas Carroll, Kessenhera, and Devin Harrison. He could be up there, too. He makes really solid contact, and like I said, already has a pretty good swing for his level. Um, it's just he needs to learn how to catch, and they need to give him less of a hitting challenge to challenge him defensively. Um, if he doesn't learn how to catch, you're probably not going to see it much past Wisconsin, and then they'll move him to first base where his back could carry him through the system pretty quickly, but he loses a lot of value there offensively. So would you say this, if it's an experiment with him with catching, would you put the shelf life on it at, you know, through the end of next season? Let's say he gets to Wisconsin next year. If he if it's not a sure sign thing that this guy can be a catcher by, you know, almost this time next year, that's when maybe they have to start considering doing something else with him? Yeah, I think you know pretty quickly if it's a guy who just can't do it. And if he doesn't loosen up a little bit and – get a little bit quicker on his release behind the plate with us because like I said, he just gets bullied by, I mean, some of it is at rookie league. You don't have pitchers who really are advanced holding runners on. And the few games that you see televised, you see that you see guys who just aren't doing him any favors behind the plate, but he still isn't making a lot of competitive throws. So, I mean, if they like everything else, they see in him, it could go longer. But if they see him and they're just like, no, he's too stiff, he can't do it, he doesn't have the athletic ability to do it, they'll end the project pretty quickly. Last last guy to talk about, and we, we've missed a lot of guys, and that's the way things go sometimes. Uh, Tristan Lutz, he's just played a handful of games there at Helena so far. Six for 12. Obviously had a good showing on the uh, MLB pipeline list that we talked about uh, earlier on in our conversation. Uh, give me your thoughts on him. Uh, well, I know the big league club is a huge fan of Tristan Lutz, he, and for good reason. Uh, he already is pretty good defensively in the outfield. Um, I agree with a lot of people who say he's going to go into right because he's clearly going to continue to put out muscle, and he's going to slow down, and right now he only plays an adequate center field. So as he gets slower, right field will be a better position for him, and he'll still have pretty average speed to help him over there, along with a really good arm. Uh, his swing is really pretty, but also extremely aggressive. Uh, I was actually talking to it with a few, or talking about some video with a few of my peers, uh, one being Nolan from Brewer Prospect, where <laughs> when he makes it's like a quick, beautiful swing that like gets through the zone really quickly. But when he decides he's going to swing at something, there's no holding up, which means there's a ton of K risk in his bat. Good thing is he has pretty good hand-eye coordination, but right now he just doesn't have the control, so that's the risk coming up the system. Right now, he it looks much older than the 18 years he is while he's punishing those players um, with his bat speed, hand-eye coordination. I mean, he makes he barrels it up so well and really hits the ball out um, where his doubles are hitting off the top of the wall most of the time. Uh, so his power is legitimate, 
But as he gets up and he bases more advanced pitching, probably even next year you're going to see him struggle if he starts in Wisconsin, which I assume he will. Uh, just because as he sees more advanced breaking balls, holding up is a really hard thing to ask him to do because he's swinging 115 miles per hour every single time. <laughs> so they're going to have to teach him to rein that in, and if, if they can, he'll be a real special kid. But that's, I mean, it's hard to teach, ask someone to completely change their batting habits when it's brought them as far as it has. So we'll see if they run any challenges with that. And if he ends up being a high K rate guy as he goes through the system, then, I mean, he still can probably be a major leaguer for a few years, but we'll see. I mean, if sometimes those strikeouts really hit way on people, they start to change a lot around and then they completely lose the ability they had before implement off the face of the earth and they just become nobodies. I don't think that'll happen. Um, this development group that has been put together the last few years has been really good with hitters. Um, and I, I think he'll still be fine. Who's the one guy that's, you know, a, mo- uh, a recent draftee that I did not ask you about that I should have asked you about? Uh, who is. Hmm, that's a hard one. Um, because the one I'm most excited about right now is Caden Lemons, uh, but he hasn't pitched yet. Um, and if I had to pick someone else, I would probably go Jason Rose. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's pitching for Helena. Um, and he has not had a lot of great success. Actually just had his first really good start um, over the weekend uh, where he went six innings and struck out one per nine or one per inning. But his his pitches are very advanced and very fun to watch, especially his changeup. It just is. It's like when Zach Davies changeup is on, mm-hmm. and it's just a thing of beauty. It's that, but it's faster. So it's actually at a reasonable. He can actually throw at a reasonable velocity. So he's just really fun to watch because his pitch movement is something special. Uh, but I mean, there's. All of them had some success. Dallas Carroll just had a um, modicum of success as uh, a census call-up at Wisconsin. Uh, but that was something we saw from players like Weston Wilson last year, um, where you're not sure if it's a senior from college just picking on the JUCO and high school pitchers that they're facing at low A. So there's no one who's gotten me too excited yet. I like to... The, but I was drooling over hero like I was. <laughs> so something about the first is because especially with recent draftees, I like to rein it in and watch them for a bit and see what happens while making reasonable expectations. Because uh, like a lot of people would do with the 2014 class, they expected Cody to come out and be East right away, Gatewood to come out and hit 40 home runs right away, and Monte to come out and be Lewis Brinson right away. And they're all 18. It's hard to expect that out of players who are just facing pro levels and going into a life where you only do baseball, which they basically did before, but now instead of that little break with friends and school, it's only baseball. So it's a lifestyle change, and you got to give them time to get into those habits. He is Brad Ford. Uh, you can read him over at Brew Crew Ball. Follow him on Twitter uh, at Brew Crew Blue. Brad, always good to get your take on uh, the minor league guys, and uh, we will talk again very, very soon. Yeah, always happy to give it to you, and uh, looking forward to next time. 
All right, that's going to do it for this edition of Brewers Extra Innings, the podcast powered by WTMJ Mobile. Our uh, thanks to our uh, guest just there, uh, Brad Ford from Brew Crew Ball. We also uh, had Kyle Loebner on the program earlier during our social media conversation. As we always do, we look ahead to the week that will be, and the Brewers are set to open up a series against the Minnesota Twins. This is a split four-game series, meaning the first two games will be held uh, in, uh, at Target Field in Minnesota, and then the second two games will shift back to Milwaukee. So that's a series that uh, starts on Monday, Monday and Tuesday in Minnesota. Wednesday and Thursday will be uh, at home at Miller Park. Then they've got a weekend series against the Reds coming up after that. So still a chance to get some wins. The Twins have not been playing great baseball recently, and uh, the Reds have been struggling really throughout the course of the entire season. Uh, you know, just something, we're, we're kind of at this point now. I've, I've never, I think we're at the point in the season where it's okay to maybe start looking at the schedule of the team that you're going against as well in terms of trying to go for the uh, division crown. So the Cubs schedule over the next week or so, they actually they start with a series against the San Francisco Giants. That's a three-game series in San Francisco on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. They have an off day on Thursday, and then they play at Arizona Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So you, you play a team in San Francisco that's not very good, and you play a team in Arizona that is pretty good uh, and has actually had some success against you recently, although Arizona not as good right now as they were uh, as far as how they're playing earlier on in the season. Okay, that's it for this edition of Brewers Extra Innings, the podcast powered by WTMJ Mobile. Again, a thanks to our guests, Kyle Loebner and uh, Brad Ford. We'll touch you again next week for another edition. It is Brewers Extra Innings, the podcast powered by WTMJ Mobile. Thanks for listening to Brewers Extra Innings, the podcast. Matt will be back next week with another episode. For all the latest Brewers news, keep listening to a home of the Brewers. News Radio 620 WTMJ.